My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Clayton Thomas Mueller. Not two weeks ago, the longest federal election campaign in more than a century came to a close, with a resounding victory by the Liberals over the incumbent Conservatives. Climate justice organizers have been doing amazing things in communities across Canada for years now, but despite the growing presence, visibility, and power of the movement, none of the mainstream parties took positions during the campaign that were even close to what those who follow the issue understand to be the minimum necessary if we are to prevent the devastation of the planet, including keeping most of the Alberta tar sands in the ground and shifting massive amounts of capital to renewables and to a new kind of economy. Organizers knew, therefore, that no matter who ended up as the resident of 24 Sussex Drive after the election, it would be someone in desperate need of some sharp pressure to start moving in the right direction around climate issues. And, as the world gears up for the 2015 United Nations Climate Change Conference in Paris, the organizers keenly feel the imperative to push for an abrupt change to the utterly embarrassing conduct in recent years by the Canadian government on this issue on the world stage. Clayton Thomas Mueller has, for more than a decade, been the campaign director of the Global Indigenous Tar Sands Campaign, and he's a member of the Puktawagan Cree First Nation in northern Manitoba. He's also the Stop It at the Source campaigner for 350.org, a global organization focused on building the climate movement. Thomas Mueller, other 350.org organizers, and their local partners in the Canadian context have been hard at work organizing what they're calling the Climate Welcome Action. They're urging as many people as possible to come to Ottawa between November 5th and 8th to deliver a strong message to new Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that the 42nd Parliament of Canada must, quote, freeze the expansion of the tar sands and commit to a justice-based transition to a clean energy economy, end quote. Each day they will deliver a different gift with a different message to 24 Sussex Drive, and each day ordinary people will be engaging in civil disobedience to drive home exactly how serious the situation is in the face of Trudeau, the Liberals, and the rest of Canada's political class pretending otherwise. Thomas Muller talks with me about climate change, the state of climate justice organizing in Canada today, and the importance of as many people as possible joining the climate welcome action in Ottawa from November 5th to November 8th. We spoke by Skype to phone from California, where Thomas Muller was attending a conference. And please note, we recorded this two days before the federal election, so the conversation is oriented towards whoever won, rather than towards Trudeau specifically. Hello, my name is Clayton Thomas Mueller, and I am the Stop It at the Source campaigner for 350.org. And this November 5th through the 8th, weeks after the federal election in Canada, we are supporting a Climate Welcome, which will be spread out over the few days, a series of gift deliveries to 24 Sussex, which is the home of Canada's Prime Minister in our capital region. And we'll be staging sit-ins where people will be risking arrest to send a very strong, firm message to the newly elected leader of the Canadian government 
The climate is a very big issue to Canadians and First Nations alike. It's something that we really want to make sure that whatever government is going to Paris to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, that they understand that issues of Indigenous rights and issues of Canada's policies on climate change are certainly of the highest priority. For the last decade, I've been the campaign director of the Global Indigenous Tar Sands Campaign, which we started in 2006 in the community of Fort Chippewan which is a frontline community downstream from the controversial Alberta tar sands development. It's a predominantly indigenous community, and we chose that as the location of our first indigenous tar sands action camp. But we brought together community leaders, elders, and young people to vision out how they wanted to pull in help from social movements across Canada and across the world to help them in stopping the expansion of the Alberta tar sands into their traditional territory. Since then, we've built up relationships on multiple continents, tracking the money that's coming in as foreign direct investment into tar sands and raising the risk of those managing these global hedge funds of pension plans and whatnot, raising the risk by elevating through narrative-based storytelling strategies, human rights intersection with the environmental catastrophe, essentially, that is the tar sands. And of course, the face of that whole fight is Indigenous peoples, Dene, Cree, and Métis people who subsisted in the Athabasca, Peace River, and Cold Lake regions where tar sands deposits exist for millennia. Since then, my work has led me to accept a position within the Global Climate Organization, 350, where they've asked me to assume the role as the Stop It at the Source campaigner to liaison with these communities that we've already got deep relationships with to invest in strategies that reflect newly emerged scientific reports calling for 85% of the world's existing fossil fuel reserves to stay in the ground. And so a lot of my work and the different hats that I wear working with Indigenous people's social movement vehicles like Idle No More and other local manifestations of land defense done by Indigenous peoples across the country have created a situation that we're very excited about. There's unprecedented unity that exists that has emerged under the repression of 11 years of Prime Minister Harper. And we're seeing dynamic coalitions like the This Changes Everything Coalition and political manifestos like the Leap Manifesto emerge. And so for us, we felt that this is the moment to continue to keep the pressure tight on whatever incoming government comes in and just to let them know that we don't have a lot of time to, you know, not act in a concrete fashion in a science-based and indigenous rights-based framework to address the expansion of the Alberta tar sands, stop the expansion of the Alberta tar sands, and certainly the infrastructure that is attached to it in the form of pipelines, shipping lanes, and refineries. Globally, fossil fuel across the planet has got to stay in the ground, but there are some key priority carbon pools that if any one of them is developed, it means game over for the entire planet, at least for humanity. You know, I'm sitting here today speaking to the listeners from the Bioneers Conference here in Marin, California, where they've been experiencing an incredible drought. And part of our changing climate means that they're dealing with a winter that is going to include devastating rains because of the El Nino effect, which is being exacerbated by the global climate crisis. And, you know, we're seeing violent, unpredictable weather events happening the world over. 
more increased typhoon frequency in the Pacific Ocean, more super hurricanes making their way further and further north up the Atlantic coast, wildfires raging from Alaska to the planet over, and ecosystems on the precipice of collapse. And all of these circumstances have been unequivocally connected to human activity on the planet. There is a shared consensus on this reality. No matter what we do, even if we stop burning fossil fuels today, we're already locked in to a time frame of global warming that will continue to have significant consequences for many, many generations. And so really what we're doing right now is working to stop weather-related events, rising sea levels for people that won't be born for hundreds and hundreds and potentially thousands of years. But in terms of the immediate future, we're going to start seeing, I mean, we already are seeing, but the severity of unpredictable violent weather events will be exacerbated. And currently right now, over 300,000 people in the global south lose their lives annually to hurricanes and mudslides and different events related to this era that we're currently living in, you know, the end of the fossil fuel era. What we're advocating for at 350 and what our local partners are advocating for is that we need to freeze tar sands expansion and we need to unthaw investment in the renewable zero energy footprint economy. And that is an absolute number one priority at the highest of levels. Now, what does that mean in terms of, you know, the global divestment movement that has gone viral? In one year of operations, it's moved $2.6 trillion of capital out of dirty fossil fuel. How do we look at taking those resources and reinvesting them in a way that is rooted in a just economic framework that takes into consideration those most affected by the mega transition that we are about to take from an extractive industry-centered economy, a high-carbon intensity economy, as some refer to it? These are the questions that, as a society, we've got to answer in a relatively short time frame within this generation if we're going to meaningfully stop more than a two-degree Celsius temperature rise on a planetary scale, which we're already committed to because of the parts per million concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere already. And so for us, I think that at the highest of priority with the climate welcome, our message to the new Prime Minister of Canada is that we need to freeze the expansion of the Alberta tar sands. We need to stop investing and hardwiring Canada's economy to a dirty, outdated energy source. And we need to re-divert foreign direct investment and local capital in Canada into the big transition, you know, investing in that transit. We need to look at food production and distribution, which is a huge contributor to CO2 in its own way. We need to look at developing a new economic paradigm in Canada that reflects the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and that respects First Nations, Inuit, and Métis communities' sovereign right to say no to harmful developments in their land that threaten their constitutionally protected rights. These are some of the complexities that we need to think about in developing a domestic climate policy for Canada. And there needs to be more integration between some of the policy vacuums between jurisdiction of the provincial governments who hold jurisdiction on natural resources in our country and the federal government who enforces many of the federal pieces of legislation that Prime Minister Harper and his Harper Conservatives guided with his omnibus bill agenda. Those laws need to be re-implemented, strengthened. We need to create new laws that are even stronger than the Navigable Waters Act and other acts that Harper has unilaterally devastated and stripped away, eroding Canadian participatory democratic mechanisms and centralizing power in the Prime Minister's office. These are all things that have happened 
under 11 years of the Harper Conservatives. And many of the policy revisions that Harper put through Parliament were written by the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers and other special interests who are in the back pockets of Canada's tar sand sector. So before we talk more about the specifics of the climate welcome action, why don't you talk a little bit about the movement context in terms of where things are at with climate justice organizing in Canada more broadly right now? Well, I think we're in exciting times in Canada. If the July 5th march was any indicator of something new and exciting happening in and amongst social movements in our country, I don't know what is. We had an unprecedented coalition representing the biggest unions in the country, including Unifor, who represents tar sands workers and refinery workers in Canada, participate in that march. And we had, you know, First Nations and Indigenous people's social movements like I don't know more involved, the Quebec student movements. Many, many different groups came together in an unprecedented mass march in Toronto this summer, which for me really represented the emergence of an intersectional analysis and a de-siloing of issues and really peeling back the veil, so to speak. I think what is happening in Canada is an undeniable look deep into the root causes of climate change, which all have their connection to Canada's economic paradigm, you know, to the C word, capitalism, the neoliberal agenda, the free market agenda. I think people are starting to make the connections between some of the symptoms of our unsustainable economic paradigm like climate change and really understand that if our strategies are not getting in the way of the movement of capital into bad projects that are bad for people and bad for Mother Earth, then probably our strategies aren't going to be very effective. And so with the divestment movement going viral, divestment campaigns on dozens and dozens of campuses across Canada and hundreds of campuses across the United States, the faith community, I mean, you know, this June's encyclical from the Vatican with the Pope picking up the issue of climate change. We're living in a sea change moment. And certainly, Idle No More is also an indicator of the deep conversations that are happening at kitchen tables across the country where people understand that Canada's economic success is fundamentally based on the fact that First Nations people and their land have been subsidizing the accumulation of wealth for Canadians and not the other way around. And I think that that narrative that has been lifted up by Idle No More, that we are all benefactors of the treaties that were signed over 100 years ago between First Nations and the settler colonial state, but that only Canadians have benefited so far from those agreements. I think that we're seeing an opportunity open up with the release of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission findings, you know, the legacy of residential school, to actually begin to have a conversation about reconciliation between First Nations peoples and Canadians in our country. And I think that, for me, this is an exciting time with limitless possibilities. Where did the idea for the Climate Welcome Action come from? The idea for the Climate Action came from our Canadian team in collaboration with the many, many local partners that we're working with, our 350 locals all across the country, as well as our First Nations partners. One of the things that we've been feeling a lot of commitment to is continuing the inertia of some of these moments that have happened in the last couple of years with you know massive actions happening on both sides of the border in both capitals, including the largest act of civil disobedience on the steps of the White House since the Vietnam War during the Keystone XL actions, which turned the issue of tar sands and tar sands pipelines into the lightning rod of the U.S. environmental movement. 
This has led to presidential hopeful Hillary Clinton condemning the KXL pipeline. And I think that building on the energy of that and building on the energy of 400,000 people that marched through the streets of New York during last year's People's Climate March and 25,000 plus people that marched through the streets of Quebec City at the climate protests that happened there in the winter. And of course, the 10,000 plus people that marched through the streets of Toronto just this July. There is a momentum on the road to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change that is undeniable. And we aim to invest in that momentum and to build up the capacity of our local partners to be able to speak for themselves. And like I said, to send a shared message to whatever government comes in, whatever prime minister moves their family into 24 Sussex. But this is a very serious issue and that the connection between the oppression, dispossession of indigenous peoples, the suppression of indigenous peoples' aboriginal title is fundamentally connected to Canada's economic model in its current state. And it needs to be addressed. Tell me about the nuts and bolts of the organizing that's going into the Climate Welcome Action, as well as the plans for the action itself. We've constructed a unique website, of course, at climatewelcome.ca. The listeners can go to that website, climatewelcome.ca, and sign up. There's many different ways people can get involved. There's a rideshare board on the website where people can coordinate transportation to get to Capital City for November 5th through the 8th. Every single day is going to have a different theme. For example, on the third day, that day is going to be focused on some of the pipeline fights that are happening across the country. Of course, Energy East is a big issue in this year's federal election, you know, with the corruption wrought by the Liberal Party and the resignation of their campaign director because he's on the payroll of Canada. You know, these pipeline fights, all of these have been big issues and have powerful, powerful movement stories that need to be told. Each of these days, with their specific theme, we'll be presenting gifts to the Prime Minister. You know, treaties 1 through 11, other critical high-level political declarations signed by communities and concerned citizens and First Nations leaders opposing the expansion of the Alberta tar sands will be put into baskets and given. We've invited Canadians and First Nations alike to send water from their region to be gifted to the new prime minister, representing the millions of lakes, rivers, and streams that lost permanent protection under the Navigable Waters Act due to Harper's Omnibus Bill agenda. There's a lot of symbolism and stories and people, really, is the big thing that this action is going to represent. We'll be lifting up the story of people on the front line and fence line of resistance against the fossil fuel regime in our country and telling their stories on each of the days. And those storytellings will happen as we go through the process of presenting these gifts each day to the newly elected prime minister and through the action of civil disobedience and doing a sit-in at the gates there in front of the prime minister's house and risking arrest. Our primary message is that we need to freeze tar sands expansion and we need to unthaw investment into Canada's renewable energy economy. And I think that woven throughout that, of course, our piece is around respecting the rights of Indigenous peoples, especially the right to free prior and informed consent, the right to say no to harmful developments on their land. And we need to do this big transition in a way that respects the just transition framework that prioritizes workers affected by the transition off of fossil fuel to retool those workers into local, highly technical, well-paying, sustainable jobs in their communities. One of the big challenges, of course, with tar sands is that so many people, including my own father, have to fly thousands of kilometers to go work up in the Alberta tar sands patch because they don't have local employment. 
This is certainly the narrative in Canada's Atlantic region, where tens of thousands of Newfoundlanders, Nova Scotians, New Brunswickers travel to Alberta every three weeks to do work. And so we need to invest in an assortment of other, you know, there is no shortage of work that needs to be done for the transition. We need to speed up that process. We've had literally hundreds and hundreds of people already sign up to be a part of Climate Welcome to welcome the new Prime Minister. We're definitely excited about having the most people show up on the fourth and final day. We will present a gift of solar panels to 24 Sussex. So we encourage social movement leaders, union leaders, members, everyday citizens, young people, all to come and be a part of the action to show your support. I think we're going to have some pretty incredible participation. So my understanding is that part of the reasoning behind the timing of the Climate Welcome Action is to welcome the new resident of 24 Sussex Drive, but part of it is also because it's the lead-up to the UN Climate Summit in Paris. How would you respond to people who are skeptical of the UN process and what we can reasonably expect from it? and particularly who question focusing climate organizing energy on the UN process, given how little it's accomplished in recent years? Well, I think that, you know, if you're asking me, do I believe that some kind of centralized, high-level governmental agreement is going to mitigate the global climate crisis? No. I mean, the Paris document references controversial carbon trading schemes like the World Bank Red Scheme 26 times. It mentions carbon markets and carbon trading, you know, I think 29 times. Nothing in there about polluter pays, nothing in there about any legally binding mechanisms. A lot of it is voluntary, is focused on the market fixes and the technological fixes and not really addressing in any meaningful way. So I think I share a lot of the skepticism that many people have, especially after the failure of Copenhagen. And I think that when we look at the Earth Summit that just happened in Rio, that was the launch of an economic scheme to privatize nature itself. You know, the launch of the green economy and governments of the world called it in Paris was fundamentally tied to the financialization of the Earth's atmosphere carbon cycling capacity and other elements of the global commons to be turned into market shares to be bought and sold in the International Carbon Trading Facility, which is managed by the World Bank. So, yeah, I think people should be skeptical about Paris, but I see Paris as an opportunity to build momentum globally, to set an example to say that the people of Mother Earth are going to lead and the politicians will follow. And that has certainly been the case in the history of social movement organizing. Paris is going to be a spectacular demonstration of people power, especially with the recent announcement of the Red Line action on December 12th governments of the world are going to very quickly see that they need to listen to the people or get left behind. And so I'm very excited about that. Speaking as an Indigenous person, as a member of Pugitawagan Cree Nation, Treaty 6 territory, Indigenous peoples have an important role to intervene on the inside of the climate negotiations in Paris because of the fact that they're sovereign nations. And even though they may not have an official seat at the table of the United Nations of Sovereign Nations, they need to be there as governments representing the 360 million Indigenous peoples of the world to put on the record that they oppose these market-based and technological fixes that don't actually mitigate the on-the-ground impacts they are affected with first and foremost being on the front line and having systems cultures that are fundamentally based on healthy ecosystems. 
And so I feel that Paris is going to be a very inspiring moment that represents the great sea change that is sweeping across the planet in terms of this undertaking, this World War II kind of undertaking that's going to be required to get us out of what we've dug ourselves so deeply into in terms of global warming. I next asked Thomas Mueller to talk about what needed to happen beyond the climate welcome action in the Canadian context. And again, keep in mind that this interview was recorded a couple of days before the recent federal election where the Liberals under Justin Trudeau swept to power. Well, I think that for sure whatever government comes into power, I mean, certainly hoping not for a Harper majority or minority. But, you know, if we have some kind of minority scenario, I think both the NDP and Liberal parties have made some pretty big commitments as far as the veto power of First Nations peoples on economic initiatives in Canada and, you know, referencing the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, particularly the provisions related to free prior and informed consent. There's some big things on the table. And I think that whatever happens, we need to continue to escalate strategies like the global divestment strategy, and particularly the reinvestment pieces of that need to be rooted in a place that supports just transition. So we need to start investing in the renewable energy economy in places where the fossil fuel economy has the greatest impact. And certainly that includes Northern Alberta and Edmonton and Calgary. So why don't you finish up with a final pitch to encourage as many people as possible to go to Ottawa from November 5th to 8th for the climate welcome action. If there's one thing for people to participate in on the road through Paris, it is the climate welcome. For so many of us, I think we've been frustrated with the horrific xenophobia that the Harper Conservative government has tried to invoke with the attack on Muslim women, with the ongoing attack on First Nations and First Nations rights. You know, we've just seen racism rear its ugly head this last couple of years here in Canada. And I think that for people that are as disgusted as we are by the circumstance and these attempts to divert people's attention away from the real issues around our economy and its connection to climate change, this is the opportunity for you to let that revulsion out and to convert that negative energy into something positive by joining the movement for climate justice, standing with your fellow Canadians and First Nations peoples and this movement for reconciliation in our country and to be active, to take initiative and to address the moral responsibility that every Canadian has to try and mitigate the damage that we've already done to the world's environment by supporting the expansion of the Alberta tar sands. You know, here's our opportunity to stop that and to do something that is restorative in nature, that a regenerative economy that doesn't force Canadians to sacrifice certain communities, i.e. First Nations at the altar of irresponsible economic policies, and at the altar of climate change impact. This is our moment. You have been listening to my interview with Clayton Thomas Mueller. He's an organizer with 350.org and with the Global Indigenous Tar Sands Campaign, and we've been speaking about the climate welcome action happening in Ottawa from November 5th to November 8th to put pressure on Justin Trudeau to freeze the expansion of the tar sands and to commit to investing in a justice-based transition to a clean energy economy. To learn more about the action, go to climatewelcome.ca. That's climatewelcome.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.